Well, this morning, for those of you who weren't here, we were looking at a passage that I referred to in the... Uh, that was a passage that I've been wanting to preach for, for a few months, that I was looking forward to uh, getting to that passage. Just so happens that this evening is a passage, as we're going through the book of Ruth, that I've had this sense of, it's coming. I'm going to have to deal with this issue. I'm going to have to preach through this passage. And it is not an easy passage to preach through. And we won't go through the whole chapter this evening. We will only look at the first five verses. But let me read to you what Matthew Henry said about this chapter. Because it expresses something of what uh, I've been dreading to have to tackle. He says, we found it. He's speaking in that royal we. But he says, we found it very easy in the former chapter, that is chapter 2, to applaud the decency of Ruth's behavior and to show what good use we may take of the account given us uh, of it. But in this chapter, referring to the chapter we just read, he says, we shall have much ado to vindicate it from the imputation of indecency and to save it from having an ill use made of it. But the goodness of those times was such as saved what, was, what is recorded here from being ill done. And yet the badness of these times is such as that it will not justify any now doing the like. So we come before this chapter, and we come to, uh, I, I desire to tackle it uh, uh, head on, but I need to make a few points. Usually you leave points towards the middle or the end of the sermon, not to the introduction. But as we come to this chapter, I believe it is important for us to be reminded uh, of biblical uh, rules of interpretation, or rules of biblical interpretation, there is. First of all, one of the things that we need to bear in mind as we read through uh, any narrative, but in particular as we come to, to chapter 3 of Ruth, is that narratives are not always normative. That the things we read in a story do not necessarily mean that we are to do exactly the same thing. Not everything in a story is something that we should attempt to do. It is simply describing events not necessarily prescribing actions or activities. As a father of a pre-teenage girl, I, as I look to this chapter, I cringe at the idea that I would give something of, of this advice to, to my young daughter when time came. Uh, uh, it is not the kind of advice that we are to give. So we must always allow all Scripture... In this first point, we must always allow all scripture to help us to draw appropriate principles and applications from the episodes and recorded in it. To be sure, let me say that I believe that there, there are many good applications to make from this text, but we must do them wisely with all of the scripture bearing on this passage, as we should do with any other passage that we read. Doing otherwise would be 
to start applying scripture in ways that we know are not meant to be applied. Can you imagine us looking at the story of Hagar and Sarah and start drawing application from how they behaved or doing the same thing, using them as examples, or Leah and Rachel and their concubines? So that's the first point before we tackle this passage. Second point is that this passage, or that even the whole of the book of Ruth, for that matter, is full of suspense, 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 suspense. It's full of, of uh, things that we are not told. Not every detail is fully explained. And that is very much by design. But there are some things that are explained here that are not explained because it was written for the people of that day that we need to try understand the cultural practices of that day for us to start getting a little bit of a sense of what's going on. But even then, I must confess that we are left with questions. I am left with questions regarding this story. I am left with situations where I'm not quite sure where to lean. And even as you read other pastors that, pre, uh, that wrote commentaries and you hear other pastors preaching this passage, you realize there are a few things here that are ambivalent or that one could be persuaded without denying the inspiration of Scripture and the, its uh, usefulness to us, that actually you could, it could go either way. But we'll get there. And thirdly and lastly, in this long introduction to, before we come to consider, we need to address the issue of sensuality in this story. No doubt it will make some of us feel uncomfortable but this very tension is important as we consider this passage because it is this tension about what is exactly the author saying? Is the author saying that this was happening? Is he implying this? Or it is exactly this tension, this question mark that, in my opinion, and following what Matthew Henry says, actually highlights the purity of Boaz's and uh, Ruth's behavior. Other Old Testament stories in similar settings lead to sexual immorality. In fact, this story has a, has a you know the story of how Moab came into uh, being a nation. A nation. It was the two daughters of, of, of uh, uh, Lot in a very similar, I would say, surprisingly and providentially similar situation do, sinning that the, one of their sons was the, the, the founder of Moab. And here is this Moabitess woman in, very similar situation, in a very similar situation to her ancestors. Although there's a lot of question marks and uh, did it happen, did it not happen, uh, behaving in an honoring, dignified way. So although there are seemingly innuendos, these innuendos are not meant for us to doubt the purity of Boaz and Ruth. These innuendos are meant to highlight that although ample opportunity was given, ample opportunity for misbehavior, they actually did the right thing for once. Although the whole history of Israel is filled with bad examples of this, 
you get to the book of Ruth and you see two men, or two men, one man and one woman. I do apologize in Portuguese, the, the term men is, you can use it for when you're referring to both genders. I know it's, it's confusing, but that's what it, why I said that. Um, the, we see this man and this woman behave in a way that is God glorifying and dignified. Especially in the day, as we saw in the, in the introductory sermon to this book, in the day where the judges ruled. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And last week, just for the context now, so, so we recap, we know where we are. If you're not too familiar with the story, if you're not being attending here, if you're visiting us, um, Last week, we looked at the ending of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a book that begins with huge tragedy. This, this woman is widowed of her husband, and then she's, uh, she loses her two sons. So three deaths, and then three widows, and then they go back to Bethlehem, uh, and one of them stays behind, Ruth. The other one joins her, her mother-in-law. And they arrive at Bethlehem, but they are poor, they are needy, they have nothing. Uh, so they, they, Ruth goes out in the morning looking for someone to show kindness to her. And lo and behold, she finds kindness in the fields of Boaz. And last week, indeed, we looked at how uh, filled uh, with, with blessing and kindness she returned to, to her mother-in-law. And she expressed, she, she told her of what had happened. And as I mentioned last week, the, the chapter kind of ends with this mute tone, this mute note. Because although it is, it is filled with, with, with this overjoy of, of overabundance being given to her, we then read in the last, chapter, uh, last verse of chapter 2 that the barley harvest was coming to an end. The wheat harvest was coming to, a, to an end. And you're left with this sense of what's going to happen to Ruth and, and Naomi now. What is going to be of them? What is going to happen in this, at the end of the harvest season? Will they be again completely isolated and destitute? What about this man that was just uh, Boaz that we, was just spoken of as being the, the, uh, a close relative, a kinsman redeemer? I, I told you I prefer the translation, the AV in this uh, translation, uh, this Goel figure. What is going to happen? So that is where we left off. And we come to verse 1, and we are told that Naomi... Uh, is playing Cupid. She's trying to arrange. And she says, My daughter, shall I not seek security? The term here, and perhaps some of your Bibles, if you have footnotes and, and, or Bible study notes, you'll find that, that security is, uh, also, could also be translated as rest. Shall I not find rest for you, that it may be well with you, that you may do well, that you may be, be well taken care of, that's basically what Ruth, or what Naomi is looking to do for Ruth. And here we need to, again, remind ourselves of, 
of some of those Old Testament concepts that are so foreign to us, but so important for us to understand what's going on in this passage. One is the leveret marriage. It comes from levir, not lever, but levir, L-E-V-I-A-R, L-E-V-I-R. It is uh, a Latin word that uh, trans- transliterates a Hebrew word for, for brother-in-law. And it is this leveret pro- uh, process that according to the, to the Mosaic law, a man, uh, when, a, when a brother died, his brother was to take, especially if there were, uh, particularly when there were no children, a brother was to take his brother, his deceased brother's wife, uh, and marry her and have descendants and, and, and establish a descendancy for his brother. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. There's other passages as I speak of this, but it, in Deuteronomy 25, 20, uh, 25, verse 5 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her, husband brother, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The leveret marriage, he performed the duty of a leveret to her. And this is an important element here. Because Ruth was not only Elimelech's uh, daughter-in-law, but she was also uh, Malan's uh, widow. But in, in that sense, she was not constrained by the law of Moses. Because when she married, she was not attached to the people of Israel. And that's why when you get to, I believe it's verse uh, 10 after this whole situation is, uh, is unfolding, as this whole situation is unfolding, this whole plan that we're looking at is unfolding, that's why Boaz says to her, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown me more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men. You could have. You, 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 you could have went for a young man. You could have tried to marry for money, but you were not under, not under any obligation to do this. I recognize that you could marry a young guy. I recognize that you could uh, go and marry for money. You could go and do whatever you please because there, this law doesn't apply to you. This law it, it doesn't apply in your case. But the fact that you are here in this threshing, threshing floor again showcases what you had promised right at the beginning in Ruth chapter 1. When Ruth said to Naomi, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. She, she made an all out, all in, in this case, commitment. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Where your people shall be my people. Uh, your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. She she was making good on the promise to, Boa, uh, to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And it is a, a wonderful illustration, again, reminding you of this. Ruth is a wonderful illustration of commitment, of compassion, of integrity, of, of, um, of fortitude, of, of diligence. 
she portrays for us this beautiful picture. But not only leveret marriage is important here, the, the issue that we read in, in, uh, in chapter 3, um, verse 2, of a relative. This is the translation, as I told you, of, of uh, the, the word goel in, in Hebrew. And as I said already, the AV translates this in a sense that I'm, I'm more satisfied. I think it is better translated. It adds clarity uh, to, to our secular or to our vernacular in the translation in English in, instead of taking away. It's the, the word for kinsman redeemer. And again, what was a kinsman redeemer? If, if a lever was concerned about uh, uh, descendancy, a kinsman redeemer were, was more concerned about property. The person who was closest to, to someone who had been deceased, he had the responsibility or he had the, the right as well to go and buy everything so that everything would stay within the family. He, he, was, he was concerned with issue, uh, issues of property and possessions. He had a responsibility to do all that was in his power, all that was necessary to secure the land and to support the persons that, that were next of kin. And now the purpose in all of this, we know what it is, is for the, the people to be preserved in the land, for, the, for, the, for those names uh, of Israel, that those names of, uh, of the Israelites would continue down through the line. God was concerned about preserving a line, a descendancy. And we all know where the story ends. So Naomi makes this plan. She wants Ruth to have rest. And Naomi had already said this. Naomi had already said in verse 9 that she wanted her daughters-in-law, and, and, uh, Ruth uh, and uh, or, uh, Orpah, right, to, to find a husband, to have, to have rest, to not, to not have to worry about um, uh, life and uh, and have someone to take to give them the safety and the security of marriage. As a married woman, Ruth, Ruth would be protected from being exploited, from being oppressed, uh, because because she was a foreigner in Israel. She would also enjoy a sense of of the of the permanence uh, that marriage would provide for her to have an heir. To, to perpetuate, perpetuate the line of Elimelech. And now as we come to chapter 3, we begin to see what, what is going on. We come to chapter 3 and we realize, well, perhaps we imply some of the things that are happening here. Did Naomi know that there was, as Boaz mentions, another close relative that was even closer? Was Naomi trying to force the hand of this closer relative by planning this out. We, we cannot really say. We cannot really understand what is the motivation. In fact, as I'll mention in the end, we cannot really say that, although we can see that Ruth and Boaz behaved uh, with dignity, I, I think it is a... Uh, you can go both ways, whether Naomi here is behaving decently uh, and her plan is... is one that is God-glorifying, or she's actually just still dealing with, with her own issues of sin. But we'll look at that in the end. But Ruth, uh, Naomi has a plan for Ruth, and she tells us, 
that in verse 2, Boaz, whose young women you were with, he's not a close relative of ours. We want you, uh, I want you to go there. He is, uh, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And again, here we need to realize what barley and winnowing barley is. And what is a threshing floor? Some of you might know, but perhaps some of you might not know. A threshing floor was the place where all the, the, the grain was brought, and they would have these different kinds of mechanisms, but they would have these uh, ways, these rolling uh, uh, things that would roll over the sheaves and would separate the, the grain from the chaff. And in certain times of the day, they are fairly predictable in a, in a in, in that region of the world, uh, you would pick up with a fork, you would throw it up in the air, and because the wind was coming, a steady wind, not too strong, not too weak, uh, the chaff would be separated from, the, from the, the grains. And that is why the, in, the Old Te- in the New Testament, this figure gets picked up so uh, illustratively and so powerfully by our Lord Jesus to refer to the Great Judgment Day where the chaff and the, wheat, uh, and the grain will be uh, separated. You're gonna, there will come a time where, well, for now they're together, but there will be a winnowing, where the chaff will be thrown away to be burned because it's useless, it's good for nothing, and the grain will be preserved. The winnowing took place in the threshing floor, usually, at sundown, as I said, uh, because of the predictability of the weather in the Middle East. Verse 3, we read that, that then Ruth tells, or that Naomi tells Ruth what to do. Go wash yourself, perfume yourself, go, go and, and dress yourself nicely. Perhaps a sign, as with David, of her, her mourning uh, bereavement period being over as a sign of her saying I'm, I'm open now to, 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 pursue, to, to be pursued to, to be betrothed again certainly the, the sense of being of dressing up like this of making herself attractive like this uh, is very reminiscent of the words of Ezekiel in chapter 16 verse 9 to 12 where Ezekiel speaks of this uh, wife, this bride. And Ruth also tells her to meet Boaz at the right time. Do not go early. Do not go too early. But only go at this time. Do it in this way. So Naomi is very meticulous. She, she knows the, the process. She knows what's going on. Make note where he sleeps and when he falls asleep. Because don't get the, the man wrong. There's going to be other there. Make note where he is. It's going to be dark. Don't miss it. Don't, don't wake up next to the, to the wrong person. Make sure you're there. Because after he falls asleep, cover yourself with his, with his garment. Don't get to, next to some other guy. See, what wouldn't be good if that happened, would it? And it, she tells Ruth to prepare herself. Let me just say this, because this is important for us to realize what is happening here. And for us to not go down the path that many commentators and many 
preachers nowadays go down because of the nonsense that we have in our culture, and they allow the nonsense of our culture to dictate what is happening here. The, the term used here by Ruth to refer to the garb, to the garment, uh, actually conveys, here it, uh, in our translation, it says, um, verse 3, wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put your best garment. Again, not, it's not that it's a bad translation in that sense. It is, in fact, it was the best garment for every woman, uh, for every young girl in, in, in the Middle East. But the best garment it conveys a sense of a heavy garment, of a garment of, of weightiness. It would be the garment, uh, a garment of, of being betrothed in. You'd know that story with, with Jacob, right? He gets married twice because the first time he got fooled. And you think, how, how did he manage to get fooled and, and marry Leah when he had worked for uh, all those years in order for, his, for, for the, the father-in-law to give, her, give him Rachel? How was he so absent-minded that that happened? Well, because in Middle Eastern culture in those days, a woman dressed up for marriage, which I believe is the term that is being used here. I'm persuaded that that is what, what is going on here. She would wear something that was so thick and so, and so uh, covered her so well that you wouldn't actually recognize it. In fact, it could be because it was dark, but I believe that it is something of this that also makes Boaz not able to recognize Ruth at first. It wasn't that she was dressed in, in flesh-revealing clothes at this time. This is a very Western idea when we read this Eastern account. She wasn't flaunting uh, her stuff. She wasn't flashing her eyes. She wasn't doing all these kinds of things. She washed herself. She perfumed herself. And that is good. If you're a young man or a young woman looking... Uh, um, for a potential husband, it, it, you do well to do these things. This is not a bad uh, advice. But there was a, a, a certain amount of dignity, decorum to all of this. That sometimes we're here in the West, we don't realize and we don't really understand because our culture is just so far removed from the culture of those days. Verse 4, let us... Uh, come to this last verse. Well, we'll look at verse 5 as well, but it's, it's what verse 4 says here. Then it shall be, this is Naomi's planning, the last verse of Naomi's planning. Then it shall be when he lies down and he, that you shall note, notice the place where he lies. Don't lie down uh, anywhere else. Uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And it's a highly symbolic act, this act of uh, uncovering feet. By coming to the threshing floor, lying Apologies. Next to Boaz's feet, Ruth is asking basically Boaz to marry her. She is in effect saying, "Can you cover me?" Can can and it's a, it's the same idea that Boaz mentions that uh, Ruth came under the shadow of God's wings. It is the same idea uh, here, and there's all a lot of parallels that I could draw here about how we, as the Church of God, we have been covered by, the, by the, the robes of Christ. But I won't go there uh, today because we still have three more, two more sermons in this chapter. But what is happening here is that Naomi uh, is wanting Ruth to follow this plan so that Boaz 
can do his job, can do, perform his duty, his role. And then finally, verse 5, Ruth's reply is comprehensive. She says, I will do what you've told me to do. It's simple, but, but comprehensive. She's not only prepared to do what Naomi has just said, but she says she will do anything. I'm prepared to do all, anything, all that you say to me, I will do. There's this no questions asked, no objections raised, no, no reasons uh, sought. She understood the plan and she was willing to trust perhaps the wisdom of her older mother-in-law. So she took Naomi's advice. She obeyed it not only as a recommendation but as a command, not a suggestion. And she showed her devotion once again to Naomi by not dissenting of her, by, by not uh, disobeying her, but by dis demonstrating an unwavering respect for her elderly mother-in-law. And this is how this scene closes. Ruth going down the road, obeying the, the plan that Naomi had set out, a little bit like Esther, come what may, I will obey despite whatever may happen, whatever the potential dangers are, she goes down. And one might ask, how is this relevant to us today? Very much like we did this morning, how is this passage relevant to me? Again, so far removed we are from this culture, both geographically and chronologically. How this, does this matter to me and you in our own day? Well, many things we can learn. First of all, that God's providential overruling is pervasive in the lives of his people. That God's providential overruling in the lives of his people Notice the events, as, as we see in the rest of, the, of Scripture. There is no hint that God's sovereignty diminishes the freedom of Naomi or Ruth or Boaz's or anyone else's actions. You see that tension so clearly in Scripture. Sometimes it's hard for us to... to uh, to reconcile in our minds and we look and we see, say, oh, the Bible is contradicting itself. No, no, it isn't. It is a beautiful tension that never argues in Scripture. They never fight, as Charles Spurgeon said. Divine, uh, divine sovereignty and human uh, responsibility, they never quarrel with one another. It is us in our rationalistic uh, eagerness that we try and we find holes where they are not. Look at what Naomi did, the role that she played in all of this, and, and you realize that, that she was totally free in those, in those actions, but yet God was overruling underneath. With no tension, or with the tension is there, but with no contradiction. And then again, there is a, a, a more particular application to this. Some of the, the commentators pick this up 
especially the older commentators. But I think it is an application that is very relevant in our day, in this culture, in our culture. It is the role of parents in facilitating, I need to be careful with my words lest someone shoots me down in, in, because I'm, I'm saying something that is so offensive to modern ears, but it's the role that parents have and the responsibility, I would say, in seeking the best for their children. I find it interesting, brothers and sisters, I find it interesting that in a culture that we don't allow our children to drive until they are 18 because we know that they, they don't have the responsibility to do that, they, we realize that, that, that they cannot vote because they're still not mature enough. And even when they're 18, nowadays it's getting, the, the, the window is getting further and further into, well into the 30s uh, of responsibility. Not that there are no exceptions to that. I'm speaking generally. Don't get offended uh, for me saying that. But in a culture that they can hardly choose uh, regular things in their life, if I, I find it hard that children, young men, young women are allowed to choose their partners with absolutely no input from their parents. And it is very much a problem of our culture. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It is a problem of our culture, where children who the day before were, uh, are asking you, how do you do this? How do you, how do you fill out your, your self-assessment? How do you do that? How you do... And, and the following day, they're coming home and saying, oh, look, this is... My, my soon-to-be husband or wife. It is ridiculous. It is a ridiculous thing, but nonetheless, it is what we see. But it is the responsibility of parents to facilitate, to exhort, to encourage. I believe scripturally, there is a responsibility there for parents. And I know this, this probably won't change in our lifetimes in this culture at least. But nonetheless, we, it is something that we should look f and point to and, and fight for. And the other side is true. If you're a young man or a young woman, I would say you should seek the advice of your elders, of those who, who love you most. A mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather. Seek to be instructed and helped by them. You see that even in, our, in, in, in modern 21st century Britain, we find that the Muslims get this, even in this country. They, they realize this, but this fierce individualism that pervades our culture, it, it, is, it is only adding fuel to the fire. You wonder why so many marriages end in divorce nowadays? Well, because... We're allowing children, are, may, are young men and young women, I'm not going to call them children, uh, young men and young women who still don't have enough maturity to make these decisions are making them without really any thought, without seeking advice. And I think that is quite clear. I think young people need to know that. And I'm probably 
given the, the age range here, most of you are probably looking at me it's like, you're the young people, but, but let me say this. Young people we're, are not as smart as they think they are. And that's being nice, saying in, the, in this way. There's you, stupid decisions and, and wrong decisions that are made. And I think this passage speaks to that, how Naomi was willing to hear her mother-in-law. The second point, and I'll be shorter here, is that the sovereignty of God overrules past mistakes. If you know the story of Ruth, or if you were here, or if you know the story of Ruth, you know that there is a, textually speaking, there is a quite clear sense that uh, Malan, or well, that Elimelech shouldn't have gone to Moab. And that's why the, the whole thing comes tumbling down when they're there. In fact, there is also the sense that Malan shouldn't have married Ruth. That he was marrying outside the... It's not that the Bible is racist. It's that the Bible is religious. And Ruth was a non-Israelite, not to, to do with ethnicity. And that's why now it's fine that Ruth will go on to marry Boaz. Spoiler. Um, but because Malan was wrong. It was wrong for him to marry Ruth. Jews were not meant to marry Gentiles. And yet that choice, the wrong choice brought Ruth to the right place. And, and then you start thinking, and if you're, if you're perverse in your thinking, you'll think, oh, so then it's fine for us to sin. So we should sin, as, so that grace may abound, as Paul says. No, no, no. Or you might say, oh, so it's right, if I'm a Christian, to marry a non-Christian or to, to start having a relationship with a non-Christian and just jettison what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, not to be unequally yoked, not to be uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's fine for me because what I'm doing is just allowing God. No, that is the wrong way of looking at it. But what we see in Scripture is that God does overrule even our wrong choices and in a, even our bad choices, even our past mistakes turn out for good. Even those things that we've rebelliously did in, in contravention of God's word, if we are his, God will overrule for good. And that is a powerful thing, brothers, especially as we live through this life and we make mistakes. We are not to be weighed down and despairing about the future because of mistakes we did in the past. Whether it be our mistakes as rebellious people, whether it be someone else's mistakes, evil that is uh, unsought for in our lives, that someone else brings into our lives, we need not be discouraged or despairing about it. We are called to trust God. And that is what God did here. In spite of the mistake of Elimelech, in spite of the mistake of Kilian and Malin, in spite of all these things, God overruled and changed it for good. And Ruth is receiving that. And finally, and here is where I'll, I'll try to be brief, but let me just mention the two options. And I'm not going to try to convince you one way or the other because, brethren, honestly, I cannot... For the, for the life of me, say, I'm sure this is the case. But we need to ask ourselves, was Naomi wrong? 
was what Naomi recommended, something uh, that was actually her uh, still behaving in these unhealthy patterns that she had picked up in Moab? Or was she actually now living a life of faith and saying this to Ruth out of, uh, out of a trust in God and recommending for her to do something that was right and, and proper and dignified? Frankly, I cannot say. But let me give the application both ways. In, in light of my unableness to, to give you uh, a definite answer, I'll allow you to make up your mind, and I believe these two applications come from that. If Naomi's counsel to Ruth was indeed a, an unfaithful advice, if in, indeed Naomi's advice to Ruth was an advice that she shouldn't have given her, which is a possibility that many good pastors and many good commentators have taken, I think we are to call ourselves to, to think about our own lives and to see how even though we are in Bethlehem, like Ru, um, Naomi was, Moab so oftentimes still rears its ugly head in our lives. What I'm trying to say is that we, like Naomi, if, the, if this is the case, we also might have the situations where although we have been brought again to the house of bread, although we are now in the place of blessing, in the place of fullness, sometimes Moab still is there calling. And sin is like that. The Puritans used to talk about it. And I, I love the, the, the language that they use because it is so fitting. It, it was the, the, the issue of being enslaved to a master. Although we are no longer enslaved to the master that is sin, yet we still know it's vo his voice. And from time to time, the master comes calling and we forget that we're no longer uh, owned by sin and we we. We obey it and we, we go and live in sin. And that's why Paul, so oftentimes, he used to talk like this. In Romans uh, 7, he, he says, The good that I want to do, uh, I do not do. And the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. And sometimes we are like this. We need to realize, brethren, if this is the case, if Naomi wasn't acting righteously, we need to realize that we are just as... Uh, susceptible to temptation and to falling away as she is and need to, we need to guard against it be on your guard let us keep watch keep the heart as Flavel used to say sin is at the door and its desire is for you that he, that he would roll over you Rather than let us remember, if that is the case, that God may have taken us out of the world. God that might have taken us out of Moab, but it takes a lifetime in this world. It takes a lifetime to take the Moab out of us, to take the world out of us. So let us be on guard and not allow sin to take hold. Now, if Naomi was behaving righteously... I think it is an encouragement for us. And again, take both of them. I believe they are two appropriate biblical applications. But 
decide for yourself what you think uh, might be the case here. But if Naomi was acting righteously, it is also a, an, an encouragement for us not to devolve into fatalism. Isn't it so wonderfully the case, especially in our circles as uh, Calvinistic, Reformed believers, that we so often re um, fall back into this fatalism? Well, whatever. It is what it is. Nothing I can do about it. It's that song, whatever will be, will be. The, true, the, the future is not ours to see. Whatever will be, will be. But you see, in the Bible, that doesn't, come along, that doesn't come across like that, does it? There is a sense that God is waiting, spurring us to action, because he appoints not only the ends, but the means. And if that is the case here, Naomi, although she has at this point realized that God was working a great work of providence in bringing all of these things together, in bringing Ruth, just so happens, as luck would have it, to come to the field of Boaz, who is a close relative. And if, if Naomi has now been transformed, is no longer bitter about all of this, but is actually looking at the hand of God in all of this, but she still takes action. If that is the case, she still is acting. She's not going, okay, I'll stay in bed and I'll wait for, for the good things to happen. Let it be a rebuke to us if we are persuaded in doing so and use our Calvinism, our Reformed theology, our strong and appropriate belief in the sovereignty of God to just lay still and do nothing. That is not what God would have us do. But brethren, isn't it great, as we finish, my friends, isn't it great that the Bible is not some set of, uh, of, uh, uh, of weird commands stringed together that we are to try and, and make our way through it. It is a Bible of real people coming to deal with the real God and finding a real love and a real relationship with Him and coming to commit themselves unreservedly to him and that is my encouragement to you don't be just a spectator trust in this God come and believe in him repent of your sins and he will save you and he will show you kindness that is beyond measure